You're listening to a sermon preached at Chao English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Almighty God, our gracious and loving Father, we thank you for giving us your Word. We pray now that you'd help us to understand what it says. We pray that you will uh, give us wisdom to know how to put it into practice in our lives. Father, please give us strength uh, to be able to not just hear what you say, but to actually do it. Father, we pray that you would really open up our hearts to your word and that you would open up your word to our hearts. For it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Uh, Dr. Clive Hamilton, you might have heard of him. Uh, Dr. Clive Hamilton is the founding director of the Australia Institute. Uh, Dr. Hamilton is a professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University and is also a visiting lecturer at Yale University and the University of Oxford. Uh, in 2005, Dr. Hamilton described what he said is a dangerous epidemic that he says is taking a hold in Australia. The epidemic is worst in the city of Sydney, but it can be seen right across the country. Dr. Hamilton says that it is an epidemic of, and I quote, overconsumption, debt, and stress. He calls it, following a 1997 American documentary, he calls it affluenza. Affluenza. Uh, in one book, affluenza is described as, and I quote, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste. Overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Hamilton writes that affluenza is endemic in Australian culture. He says, and I quote again, the Australian dream is an inflated one and becoming increasingly dreamlike, and yet people continue to chase it. Hamilton uses uh, all kinds of figures to back up his diagnosis. For example, did you know that surveys show that two-thirds of Australians feel that they can't afford to buy what they need? Two out of three Australians think they can't afford to buy what they need, and yet at the same time, Australia is the third largest generator of landfill in the world per capita. Think about that. What that means is we throw away more than just about anyone else in the world. Uh, many Australians describe themselves as being under great stress, in particular, financial stress. And much of it comes from spending beyond our means. 2021 Reserve Bank figures indicate that the average Australian adult was in debt of $107,000. $107,000 in debt. Hamilton writes that affluenza is to blame at a personal level for, and I quote, psychological disorders, alienation, and distress. That's at a personal level. But he also reckons that this epidemic is harming Australia as a society. He writes that, and I quote, because of affluenza, we have collectively given up on the idea that we can make a better society. 
Of course, affluenza is not a physical or a biological disease. It's a function of our greed. It's a function of our sin. It's a spiritual problem. And of course, it's not a new thing at all. In fact, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus warned his disciples about this. So today, we're continuing our studies in Matthew's gospel, and today, I'll have you know, is episode 10 of 45. As a church, we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew since July, and we're going to finish around May next year. And at the moment, you found, us, you found ourselves stuck in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking to his disciples. He's been describing to them what it means to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. And he's been telling them, his disciples, he's been telling them the kind of righteousness that is expected in God's kingdom. The kind of righteousness that you will need to have if you're going to be able to get in to God's kingdom. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said it. Uh, Look with me, probably in the previous page in your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says this. This is a key verse. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that's the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus talked about how much you need to obey God's law to get into God's kingdom. He says the standard is perfection. That's the standard. You need to obey God's law perfectly, not just in your actions, not just externally, but in your heart and in your words as well. That's what we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gone on to talk about the kinds of religious practice that we need to get into God's kingdom. And again, it's gotta be done from your heart. No hypocrisy. Everything needs to be done genuinely from the heart. So for example, when you give to the poor, or when you pray, or when you fast, you've gotta do it for God. Not to impress other people, You do it for God with a genuine heart of worship. Jesus has shown us that it's been a high standard, a very high standard. Jesus has set the bar very, very high. And now, Jesus continues by turning to the issue of how we deal with the things of this world, how we deal with the stuff of this world. That's what this portion of the Bible is about, how we deal with things, money, Food, drink, clothes, things like that. If this was written 2,000 years later, how we deal with iPhones, TVs, cars, houses, technology, gadgets, how we deal with the things that we have here and now in this life. Jesus talks about how we need to relate to the stuff of this world if we're going to get into God's eternal kingdom. He talks about how our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes in this area. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, like most religious people in history, they did pretty well for themselves financially. Uh, Their religion made them sensible. Their religion made them responsible. They weren't big drinkers. They weren't big gamblers. They were disciplined. They were wise. They worked hard. They valued education, and so generally speaking, they were financially successful. They they, they were prosperous. Of course, with that, though, came the temptation to love the money that they'd earned. The temptation to love the things that they were able to get. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, it talks about how the Pharisees loved money. The Pharisees in Jesus' day 
they were very much like us. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were very much like us. How so? Like this. Helped along by their religion, they were well-educated, and they were hardworking. Following God's good and wise ways had led them to success, monetary success here in this world. But with that came temptation. The same temptation that you and I face, the temptation to affluenza, the temptation to love and to long for the stuff of this world as if it's going to fix up our lives, the temptation to live for the stuff of this world. Now, in this next section of his sermon, Jesus warns his disciples about this. And what he does is he just piles up image after image after image. That's what we're going to see. He just piles up image after image. He begins with the image of storing up treasure. That's the image that he starts with, storing up treasure. Uh, Storing up treasure, to be honest, it's not something that we do today. It's a common image from back in those days. Uh, Back in those days, you didn't put your money in a bank and then track it on your phone. Uh, Nothing like that. Back in those days, banks existed, but they were very rare. Most people didn't have access to a bank. So if you had money to spare, what you would do is you would buy stuff. You would buy stuff like gold, like silver, precious jewels, spices. You would buy valuable clothes. You buy all this expensive stuff. And what you would do is you would store it up. That's what you would do if you had money left over. You would keep it in a locked room or a closet or a locked box or something like that. You'd keep it there for safekeeping. Uh, Reading the news nowadays, I guess in some countries today, that's probably a safer way to save your money, right, than banks. But anyway, Jesus picks up on this image. He talks about earthly treasure. And he says that earthly treasure is temporary. It's soon gone. He compares it, he contrasts it with heavenly treasure. Heavenly treasure, that is, being part of God's kingdom. He says that is permanent. Nothing can take that away. And so Jesus says, go for the heavenly treasure. That's what he says. Nothing can take that away. Go for the permanent stuff. Go for the heavenly treasure. Store up heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure. Look with me in your Bibles. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus talks about our hearts. He talks about our hearts. Now, don't be confused when you're reading the Bible, hearts. Uh, When you read the word heart in the Bible, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about this. It's not talking about a love heart. When you see the word heart in the Bible, it's not talking about romance. Uh, When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about your true character. That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about your heart. It talks about your heart as in who you really are on the inside. That's what the the Bible means when it talks about heart. And Jesus says this. Jesus says, what you store up, what you value, what you live for, it changes who you are. If you live for this world, it will change you. If you live for God's eternal kingdom, it will change you. Either way, it'll shape your heart. 
It'll define, it'll mold your character. It'll change who you are. Look with me at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, if you're someone that has a lot of investments, you fully agree with what that says. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. I have a friend, and he recently got into Forex or foreign exchange, and he's always on his phone. I had coffee with him two weeks ago, and I think in one hour, I'm not even exaggerating, I think he was on his phone maybe 40 different times, just checking. He just wants to see how it's doing. And he says that's all. He says he wakes up in the middle of the night to check it. He loses this anxiety. Jesus was right. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus picks up on this image of where your treasure is, there our heart is, how what we seek after changes us, but he changes images a little bit. And this time, he talks about our eyes. It's an image of what we're looking for, what we're seeking after, what we're searching for. Jesus says, your eye can bring light or darkness to your whole body. In other words, to your whole life. In other words... What you seek after, again, will change you. What you're seeking will change your whole life. If you seek after the stuff of this world, Jesus says, it will bring darkness into your life. Darkness here in the Bible is a metaphor for evil character. If that's what you're searching for, then it'll change you for the worse here and now, and long term, it'll bring Profound darkness. What you seek after, if you seek after the things of this world, it'll bring darkness. And if that is your whole life orientation, then it brings utter blackness to your life. But, but, if you seek after God's kingdom, that'll bring light to your life. It'll change you, in other words, for the better it will make you into a better person. Look with me at verse 22 and 23. Verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How, how profoundly is your life darkened if your whole orientation is towards this world? Jesus changes images again. This time, he talks about slavery. Slavery is, of course, and very tragically, extremely common in our world today. It's extremely common in our world today globally. Uh, slavery is not so much common in our society here in Sydney, uh, but all around the world, and even back in those days, slavery was very, very common. Slavery was where a person owns another person. That's the definition of slavery. When a person is owned by another person, that's slavery. The thing about slavery, though, is you can only have one master. Think about it. That's how it works. You can only have one master. You only have one owner. So Jesus picks up on this image, and he applies this image of slavery to the idea of God and money. And Jesus says, you can't have two masters. It's impossible. If God is your owner, then you're not owned by money. If money is your owner, then you can't be owned by God. If you want to seek for God's kingdom, then you can't be a slave of this world. Look with me at verse 24. Verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters, or literally, no one can be a slave to two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, what have we got so far? I'll give you a quick recap. Image after image after image. Store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Where your treasure is, uh, it'll change your heart. Where your treasure changes, it who you are. If you seek for the things of the kingdom, it'll bring light. If you seek for the things of the world, it'll bring darkness. Jesus says, have God as your master, not money. Lots of images, but can you see it's all saying the same thing? Can you see? It's all making the exact same point, right? What's he saying? Jesus is saying, live for God's kingdom. Don't live for this world. That's his point. Jesus now goes on to talk about one particular aspect of living for this world, one particular aspect, and that's the aspect of worrying. Worrying. Worrying about the stuff of this world. Worrying about food, clothes, money, stuff. Dr. Clive Hamilton, he points out in his book that worry is endemic in Australian society. And he says that it's very ironic because we have better living conditions than practically anyone, anywhere in all of history. We, modern day Aussies, have more and better food than anyone else in human history. Think about it, particularly if your church is so close to Strathfield or Burwood, particularly if you're near places like Carlingford, Eastwood, Rhodes, Chatswood. Here in Sydney, we have access to so many different kinds of food. We can pretty much eat whatever we want. We, in addition, modern day Aussies, have more and better clothes. Clothes. Friends, I'm sure that there is a major shopping center within 20 minutes from your house with literally hundreds of clothing options, hundreds. Sometimes Jane and I, we need to buy something like clothes. And I tell you, sometimes we go to Hornsby Westfield, that's our local, but if they don't have it there, we go to Towers. If they don't have it, we go to Macquarie. Sometimes we go to Chatswood. Chatswood, if it's not there, you go to Chase. We literally, as Sydney Siders, we literally have thousands and thousands of clothing options. In addition, modern Aussies, we, have better housing than most people have in most of the world through all of human history. We, Sydney Siders, we are safer than pretty much anyone else in human history. Think about it. We have, as modern Sydney Siders, we have better healthcare. We actually have great lifespan. We are, I think, as last time I checked, we are top eight or top five of expected lifespan in the world. We, Aussies, modern-day Aussies, have better expectancy of life for our children. We have the most, humanly speaking, physically speaking, we have the most magnificent, safe, beautiful, abundant lives. And yet, as a society, Dr. Hamilton points out that we're characterized by constant anxiety and depression. And it is increasing in the opposite rate of our living standards going up. Think about that. So as our living standard goes up, our anxiety and depression seems to be going up as well. Of course, though, that's not just a phenomenon out there, is it? It's true among us as well, isn't it? If we're honest. 
Some of us? No, no. Most of us? No. All of us. All of us worry about stuff, don't we? We're anxious. The rates go up, we get anxious. We're stressed about the stuff of this world. Well, Jesus goes on, and Jesus gives seven reasons why we shouldn't be stressed. He gives us seven reasons why we shouldn't worry. Seven reasons. Seven reasons why we should seek God's kingdom and stop stressing out about earthly things. Seven reasons. I hope you're taking notes. First reason is in verse 25. In verse 25, Jesus says, and I think this is an incredible thing to say, Jesus says, there's more to life. Jesus says, there's more to life than food. There's more to your body than clothes. In other words, Jesus is trying to make the point, we're not just physical beings. We're not just like machines that if you put the fuel in and if you cover it up appropriately and if you oil it and grease it, then everything's going to be fine and it runs like clockwork. No, no, that's not what our life is all about. We are made in the image of God for relationship with God. We are made to be part of the kingdom of God. We have a profound, we have a magnificent reason for existence. But if you focus your life on this world, if you spend your life stressing about the things of this world, you're missing the big picture of what your whole life is about. You're missing out on what's really important. You're missing out literally on the very meaning and the purpose of your life. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And here's the first reason. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? There's more to life. Reason number two, the second reason. It's in verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds and learn a lesson. He says, learn a lesson from the birds. God provides food for the birds. Birds, they don't spend their lives stressing out about what they're going to eat. God provides food for the birds. Jesus' point is this. You are more important to God than a bird. So why are you spending your life stressing out about what you're going to eat? Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? That's reason number two. Reason number three is in verse 27. Jesus says this, worry is futile. Worry doesn't change anything. Worry doesn't fix anything. Worry doesn't achieve anything. Worry, Jesus says, is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Look at verse 27. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? That's reason number three. Reason number four. Reason number four is the lesson of the flowers. Flowers. 
Similar to the lesson of the birds, Jesus says, God clothes these flowers beautifully. These beautiful flowers that we see all the place, they've never been to the Macquarie Center. That's what he's saying. They've never been to David Jones. These beautiful flowers, they don't spend their lives stressing out about being beautiful, and yet there they are, beautifully clothed. His point is this, you are more important to God than flowers. So why do you spend your life stressing out about what you're going to wear, stressing out about how you look? Look at verse 28 to 30. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? That's reason four. Reason number five. Reason number five is this. Worry is a godless thing to do. Worry is a godless act. If you're in God's kingdom, you have God as your father. He is your dad. You have a God who cares for you. You have a God who provides for you. You have a God, get this, who knows what you need. You have a God who knows better than you what you need, and you have a God that can provide all those things for you and who does provide those things for you. We, as subjects of God's kingdom, we have a Father who has our best at heart. We have a Father who we can trust People in God's kingdom who have this father, they ought to be different from people who don't know God. They ought to be different from pagans. They ought to be different from godless people because these people, we know God, they don't. They ought to be different because they ought to be able to trust their father and stop worrying about the stuff of this world. Look at verse 31 and 32. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Reason number six. Jesus gives his sixth reason in verse 33. He says, God will provide for the people who seek his kingdom as first Priority. That's the sixth reason. God will provide for those who seek his kingdom as first priority. We shouldn't worry about the stuff of this world. Instead, what we should do is this. We should set our hearts, we should set our eyes, we should set our minds on God's kingdom, on pleasing God, on living for God, on living for God's purposes. Now, most people, they take what Jesus says here as a promise for this life. Maybe that's you. If you seek God's kingdom, then you'll get all the food and drink and clothes that you need here and now. And I'll be honest with you, for a long time, that was my view. But in in the light of having to read the Sermon on the Mount now and to study it in depth and working through it with you, I've changed my mind. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, particularly given the context of the Beatitudes. 
particularly given what he's already said in the Beatitudes, I think that what Jesus is saying here is that God will give you everything you need in his kingdom. And of course, the reality is there have been plenty of people who have sought God's kingdom as a first priority and who have starved to death. I don't think this is a promise for this life. I think what Jesus is saying is this. In God's kingdom, we will have everything we need I think what he's trying to say is this. He's trying to say, in God's kingdom, we're not going to be disappointed. Just to stress the point a bit harder, we're not going to get to God's kingdom and be sitting there in God's kingdom and thinking to ourselves, I really wish I ate better on earth. I don't think... You and I will be sitting in heaven saying amongst ourselves, oh, I really wish I went for that extra kebab. Oh, I I wish I'd eaten those dumplings instead of serving God. I really wish I went for that extra malatang instead of spending my money on missions because the food here is so bad. It's not going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. You're not going to get to God's kingdom and say, oh, I wish I had more dresses on earth. We're not going to get there and say, oh, I wish I made a few more trips to Maya. Oh, I wish I went to Sephora just a few more times instead of spending my money on global mission. Oh, I wish I had a few more times to to go to that shop instead of giving money to those missionaries that visited our church because the clothes here, they're so ugly. Friends, it's not going to happen. We're not going to be disappointed. God will provide. Look at verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Last reason. Jesus gives his seventh reason not to worry. He says, this life, it's going to be full of trouble. There's always going to be something to stress about. There's always going to be something to worry about. Each day on earth is going to have enough troubles of its own without worrying about what's even going to happen tomorrow. That's his point. This world is going to be tough, but worrying about it is not going to fix it. Worrying is just going to make things worse. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right. Seven reasons. Can you see them? Seven reasons not to worry, all piled on top of each other, one after the other. If you worry about the stuff of this life, you're forgetting what's really important, what your life's really on about. Your life is more valuable to God than birds, but yet he feeds them. Worry changes nothing. You are more valuable to God than flowers, and yet he clothes them. God is a father you can trust. God will give you everything in his kingdom. And worrying about this life will just make it worse. Seven reasons. Those are good reasons. Don't you reckon? These are good reasons. These are compelling reasons to stop Worrying. All right. Friends, can you see what Jesus is saying in this passage here? If you put it all together, what's he saying? What's his, if you had to summarize this bit, 
What Jesus is saying, he's saying, live for God's kingdom. Don't live for the things of this world. That's his point. Spend your life, spend your time, spend your efforts, spend your stress, spend your money on trying to please God. Not on food, not on clothing, not on houses, not on technology, not on stuff. Jesus is saying, stop worrying about this temporary world. Rather, trust in God and live for Him. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Until you think about what it actually means for our lives. So let's think about it. What do we do with this passage? How does this apply to you and me today? Now, at the risk of being very boring, I actually want to make the same four points of application that I made two weeks ago, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Application point number one. The first point is this. I look at what Jesus says here, and I love it. Like, it makes sense. It makes good, good sense. I like what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here, this is who I would like to be. I want to be the person who knows my God as my Father. I want to be the person who knows God as my perfect, loving, providing dad. I want this to be me. I read what Jesus says here, and I really want to be a person who believes that God's kingdom is real, that God's kingdom is actually more valuable than the temporary treasures of this world. I I want to be a person who therefore seeks God's kingdom as number one priority. I, I, I read what Jesus says here, and I want to be a person who doesn't stress about, who doesn't seek after the stuff of this world, but who genuinely loves God and genuinely lives to please him. I can see that this would be pleasing to God. I can see that this is the best way to live. It would be a much more pleasant way to live. It would be a much more sensible and a more fruitful way to live, and I would like to do it. But sadly, this point number two, second point, this is not who I am. I read what Jesus says here, and I realize this is not me. It's actually very far from me. I am a person who does worry. I worry all the time about money, about stuff. I worry about the rent. I worry about saving up for a house. I worry about providing for my unborn child on a pastor salary. I worry. I worry about school fees that are yet to come. I worry about the bills that might increase. I worry about my job. I worry about providing for my wife, Jane. I worry about my child's education. I worry about the things that I can provide or not provide for my child. To be honest with you, friends, at any one time, I could tell you a thousand things that I'm worrying about. I read this and I realized this is not me. I do seek the things of this world. I see an ad on the internet and I realize that I need it. Right? Am I alone in this? Like, it's weird because our devices are listening to us. They know what we're looking for. And then it tells us these things and I realize that I need it. These are things that I didn't even know existed before, but I see an ad and I'm like, I think I need this. I am that wretched person who flicks through the JB Hi-Fi catalog and I realize there's actually heaps of things that I need. 
If I'm honest with you, it's really hard to be satisfied that isn't the latest and the greatest, whether it's a car or a phone or a computer, a piece of tech, whatever. My treasure is very often in the things of this world. My eyes are set on the things of this world. I am someone who tries to live with two owners. And because of that, it hasn't changed my heart. It has actually brought darkness to who I am. It's made me greedy, selfish, insecure, worldly, and comparing. I compare myself with others. It stops me from being content. It stops me from being generous. I recently reread a book that I read as a brand new Christian by Tim Keller. It's called Generous Justice. You should read it. Um, and I have to say, I read that book, and it's not overstated, it's not intense, he's not yelling at me. He just goes through the Bible, and very gently and very clearly, he talks about how genuine Christianity must work itself out in being generous to the poor. I read that, and it's like a punch to the face. It's miles removed from my life. It's overwhelming. Church, I look at what Jesus says here, and it's perfectly clear. It's perfectly clear. On the basis of my seeking God's kingdom, on the basis of me choosing God over the stuff of this world, I will, chapter 5, verse 20, clearly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has set the standard, and I don't meet it. Surely I'm not alone in this, am I? You don't meet Jesus' standard too, do you? You're not going to make it either. There's a famous story of kind of a trap that people use to trap monkeys. Uh, it's a very simple trap. It's a little box, sometimes a coconut. It's a little box, and they get a small hole. They make a small hole, and inside the box or inside this coconut, they put a peanut. It's a trap. And the monkey finds it. The monkey can put his hands inside the hole, and the monkey can pull the hand out when the hand's open. But if the monkey grabs the peanut, it can't get its hand out. This trap it works. It's worked for centuries. The monkey gets in there, grabs hold of this peanut, and it cannot pull its hand out of the trap, and it just stays there. It doesn't want to lose its treasure. It just stays there until people come and catch it, and that monkey becomes dinner. That's us, isn't it? And it stays there. We are so busy holding so firmly onto the stuff of this world that we have closed the gates of heaven to ourselves. Well, praise God, that's point number three. Third point. Third point is this. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he did come to fulfill them. Jesus always sought first the kingdom of God. We saw it just magnificently when he was in the wilderness. Do you remember back in chapter four? Do you remember so clearly? There he is in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's starving. He's hot. He's sweaty. He's thirsty. He's tired. But the devil comes 
And Jesus shows him so clearly that it's God first, food second. It's God first, comfort second. Jesus did it. It's God first, power, success, career, wealth, house, second. It's God first. Or you might remember from John chapter four when Jesus says an amazing thing. Jesus says this in John chapter four, verse 34. He says, my food is not kebabs, it's not K-barbecue. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus valued God and his kingdom over and above the stuff of this world until ultimately he gave his life in obedience to God. Jesus died on that cross to win for us, to win for himself treasure in heaven. What's the treasure? The treasure of his people, us, those who are saved. He has won for himself treasure. People who are trusting in Jesus, people who are forgiven of their sins, people who are made able to enter into God's kingdom. Jesus sought God's kingdom and his righteousness even to death on a cross. And now God has raised Jesus to life again. And through Jesus, God has thrown open the gates of his kingdom. He's thrown them open even even to selfish dark-hearted, money-enslaved, world-worrying people like you, like me. The gates of heaven are open. And so to our final point, point number four, how should we respond to what Jesus says here? Well, first and foremost, you've got to rely on Jesus, right? Surely, you've got to trust in Jesus, We must entrust our lives to Jesus. We're not gonna get into the kingdom of heaven without Jesus. We are way too worldly. We are way too greedy. Our hand is way too firmly gripped on that peanut. There is no way that we're gonna get ourselves out of the trap. We need Jesus to drag us into heaven. We need Jesus to save us. Friend, please don't ever think that you're gonna make it to heaven on your own. Please never think that you could outweigh your bad deeds by good deeds. It's so stupid, you'll never make it. Please put your faith in Jesus. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to bring you into God's kingdom. This is not a good suggestion, friends. It's the only option. It's the only option. It's the only way that you and I could ever be a part of God's kingdom. It's if Jesus drags us there, friend. Put your trust in him. Rely on Jesus. But we don't want to just leave it there, right? Because as people who are forgiven by Jesus, we need to listen to him. We need to listen to what he says. And we want to see that a lot more clearly next week. We're going to see that to build your life on the rock is not just to hear Jesus' words, but it's actually to do them. If you're relying on Jesus, you have a place in God's kingdom. If you're relying on Jesus, you have a place in the kingdom of God. And the news is, it couldn't be any better. Nothing is better. Nothing can ever take God's kingdom away from you. You have a treasure that no one can steal. You have a treasure that will not get eaten. You have a treasure that's never going to rust away. You have a treasure that's never going to be replaced by version 14 Pro Max. It's never going to be replaced. You have a treasure that is yours forever. 
And as part of God's kingdom, you have a heavenly father. You have a father who knows your need. Church, listen to this. You have a father who values you more than any animal, more than any plant, more than anything else that he's created in all of the universe. You have a father who loves you. You have a father who has plenty stored up for you in this life and the next life. You have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a father who loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? No, seriously. Do you? Then stop living like a pagan. Stop living like a godless pagan. Stop worrying so much about the stuff of this world. Stop storing up earthly treasures. Stop fixing your eyes on this world. Stop trying to serve two masters. Instead, God is telling us today, seek first his kingdom. Seek the kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be taken. Love with all you have this Father who cares for you, who provides for you, who watches over you. Make pleasing Him your number one priority. Learn to be content with what you have in this life. Learn to be generous with what God's given you in this life. Learn to love God. Friend, I suspect, no, I don't suspect, I know that all of us have a dose, a serious dose of affluenza, don't we? We have a serious dose of this deadly disease, this spiritual disease of affluenza. It darkens our life here and now, and uncured, it's gonna keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Church, we need to repent of our passion and our longing for the things of this world. We need to instead live for our heavenly Father, and for his kingdom. God help us. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious, our loving, our holy heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for for, for this wonderful news that your kingdom is open to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in him we have a treasure that can never be taken away. Thank you, Lord, that in your kingdom, you are our loving Father who will provide for us perfectly, who knows what we need. Our Father, we are so sorry that we don't believe it. Lord, would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you please forgive us for our love for this world? Would you please help us to trust you, to believe you, to love you, to obey you, and to seek first your kingdom? For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.